This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. taking all these books? I thought I'd take some light reading, in case I got bored. Welcome, everyone, to episode 278 of Literary Treks. That's your dedicated Star Trek books and comics show here on the Trek FM network. I'm one of your hosts, Dan Gunther, and joining me, as he does every week, is the wonderful, the knowledgeable, the intelligent, the stupendous Bruce Gibson. Bruce, how's it going? No, 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 no. You're not talking about me, are you? Oh, come on. You're making me blush. You're making me blush. <laughs> well, it's all true. It's all true. Um, I, I, We say this so many times, but this is just such a huge highlight of my day, sitting here talking about Star Trek books with you. And uh, we got a lot of Star Trek. not with just me, though. No, not just with you, actually. Uh, we do have in the feature today, we're going to be talking about Star Trek Discovery, The Enterprise War by John Jackson Miller. And we've got a special guest with us. And yes, it is in fact New York Times bestselling author John Jackson Miller joining us to talk about his novel. So really excited about that. Yay. I'm excited too. You know, he's written so many tie-ins to different franchises. I don't know how he keeps it all straight. Not even just keep it all straight, but how he stays connected to all those franchises. I mean, he must be reading and watching stuff all the time. Uh, I I can't think of a better job, though, right? <laughs> Good point. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, an incredibly prolific author. Uh, we were actually talking on the other side of the page. I didn't realize this, but he's written four... Uh, Star Wars novels, which means he's actually written more Star Trek novels now than Star Wars novels. Now, we can, of course, count the graphic novels and then, you know, his Star Wars output shoots up way above there. But just talking right. about, you know, prose novels, that's pretty cool. I know that's so funny when you said that, because I thought about how I typically think of him as, oh, yeah, the Star Wars guy that made the move over to Star Trek. And now it's like, oh, but now he's written more Star Trek novels than Star Wars novels. Even <laughs> though I've read all of his Star Wars novels and I've read all of his Star Trek novels. Oh, wow. Yeah, I've, I've only read two of his Star Wars novels. And in fact, I've only read two Star Wars novels. So that's kind of interesting. Now, wait, did you read those after he became a Star Trek author? 
Uh, it was actually when he was announced that he was going to be writing a Star Trek novel. I thought, I'll check I out knew. this Kenobi book. <laughs> I knew there'd be a Trek connection in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's my life. I, 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 but I read Kenobi and I really enjoyed it. So, uh, yeah, no, he's a great author uh, and really excited to have him on. But before we get to that, we do have a bit of news now. I'm sure you've heard a lot of the Star Trek book news that came from the Las Vegas convention, uh, which by the time this episode comes out is, you know, a couple weeks in the past now. But we did want to touch on some of that quickly. Uh, we've got the 2020 schedule starting to get filled out, which is pretty cool, including uh, the first tie-in novel to Star Trek Picard, Coming in February, Star Trek Picard, The Last Best Hope by Una McCormick. I'm really excited for this one. No, I am too. And uh, look, you can watch Picard and not read this novel. It's not a requirement. You're not going to be lost. I've seen some people mention that online. No, this is a bonus. Think of it that way. It's a bonus before <laughs> you watch Picard. It'll give you some extra background material that maybe even the writers in the room were considering. It's all Una's thing that she came up with Picard. Exactly. And uh, yeah, so for the rest of 2020, following that in March, we get an original series episode, The Higher Frontier by Christopher L. Bennett. Uh, we've since learned that this is set during the movie era, kind of around the motion picture time, that area that uh, Chris Bennett likes to play around in. So oh, that's thank goodness. Cool. I had no idea. I'm glad you said that because I didn't know that. I'm, I'm so glad because <laughs> they they're always feel like they're during the original five year mission. So I'm happy to hear that. Yeah, it's 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 a time period that Christopher Bennett's had a lot of uh, big hand in shaping, so it's good to see him playing around in that again. Now, April, this is interesting. Now that Simon and Schuster have the rights to do the Kelvin timeline stuff in their novels, they've kind of resurrected a couple of the cancelled Kelvin timeline novels from a few years ago. Uh, and the first one we've got coming in April is The Order of Peace by Alan Dean Foster. And this is taking place in the Kelvin timeline. And reportedly, this is the novel that was originally titled Refugees, given a bit of a facelift uh, for release at this time. Thank goodness. Thank goodness for this, too. I'm a happy person <laughs> right now because I've been wanting these novels for like 10 years now. Definitely. Following that in June, we get another original series novel, Agents of Influence by Dayton Ward. We don't know anything about this one yet. Uh, I bet it's the later half of the five-year mission. But anyway, go on. <laughs> Probably. Towards the end of the five-year mission. Towards the end, yes, it always is. But that's cool. I that's just don't cool. want it that's all cool. the time. But we don't know. It could be something completely different. It could be. <laughs> then in August, we get the second of those Kelvin timeline novels. This one's More Beautiful Than Death by David Mack, uh, retaining the title that it originally had when it was originally going to come out in 2010. Uh, and then, you know, it, it's like a David Mack book to have the word death in the title. Right? Yeah, it's just, I, you know, it, it's it's playing it's playing up to his brand for sure. <laughs> <laughs> So also coming in 2020, we have the next Star Trek Discovery novel. Uh, this one doesn't have a title yet, but it's by John Jackson Miller. Uh, hey, that's that name's familiar. I think we're going to be talking to him a little later. Yeah, maybe he'll give some hints. Ooh, that would be that would be cool. I doubt it. Probably not. <laughs> and we also have a Voyager novel by Kirsten Beyer. Presumably, this is 
to lose the earth, which we'll pick up from the cliffhanger at the end of the last Voyager novel. Uh, this one's been pushed back and delayed quite a bit, uh, obviously because Kirsten Byer has been very busy working in the writer's room of Star Trek Discovery and now Star Trek Picard. So really excited to see this one on the schedule. Okay. So I am not getting my hopes up. I think we will get this book someday. I just wouldn't be surprised if it's get if it gets delayed again or whatever into 2021 because she's so freaking busy. And because of that, I almost hope it's the last book. Like she ties everything up because with the timeline changes of Picard affecting the Trek lit universe continuity and all that in her time, you know, I mean, believe me, I would love for her to just keep writing Voyager novels forever, but the anticipation of waiting years, wondering when are we going to get the next one? You know, let's give her a break. Let's have her concentrate on the shows like she's doing. And then if she's ever done with the shows, she can pick up Voyager again. Maybe later, whatever. <laughs> I have a feeling you're right. I, I, I don't have anything to back this up, but I feel like this is going to wrap up that Voyager storyline uh, for sure. I, th- I think anyway, um, I, I really hope you're wrong about it being delayed again, though. I, I want to read it. Oh, so I hope bad. I'm wrong too. And you know, we and the fact that you know, I think she knows her pacing and everything. It, more than likely, I think we'll get it by the end of 2020. But I wouldn't be surprised if there's a delay. Yeah, yeah, and I think that might be part of the reason why it doesn't have a set place on the schedule yet. It's just sometime in 2020. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. So continuing on with the Star Trek Picard prequel news we also got an announcement from idw and uh, this is right from the uh, cbs consumer products press release starting in november idw will release star trek picard countdown a deluxe three issue miniseries written by mike johnson and series supervising producer kirsten Beyer. see there she is just busy again see <laughs> this countdown event centers around a mission that would go on to change the life of beloved Star Trek Captain Jean-Luc Picard, widely considered to be one of the most popular and recognizable characters in all of science fiction. So, yeah, this is another uh, a bit of prequel story to Star Trek Picard. A little confusing that they're calling it Star Trek Picard Countdown. I feel like that might get confused with the Star Trek Countdown series a little bit. Uh, especially since it's kind of in the same time period, interestingly enough. Yeah, I'm really curious to see if it's going to fit in well with that original Countdown comic or if it's going to contradict it. Because in that comic, spoiler, if you haven't read the Countdown comics to the first Star Trek Kelvin universe, I'm giving you time to jump ahead a couple minutes. Okay, um, <laughs> you know, for example, Picard is an ambassador at that time. And it doesn't sound like in this new series of Picard that he was an ambassador because he Mm -hmm. went to become an admiral and then he left Starfleet. Very interesting. Yeah. I I, I feel like, yeah, they're going to be not compatible, like you say. Um, But I'm really curious to see what they've come up with here. And again, like Bruce mentioned with the novel, these are in no way required reading. Um, but you should read them because they're Star Trek comics and this is a Star Trek books and comics show. So we, we love them. You don't have to read them if you're going to get, you know, all annoyed by books that tie in, but whatever. Yeah. But <laughs> if you listen to the show, you do want to read them because you want to hear us talk about them. Exactly. Exactly. 
<laughs> well, that's why, uh, did, why does anybody want to hear what I have to say about a book anyway? I don't know why you people are listening. You're just this is what I always ask every day. <laughs> <laughs> oh. All right. It's been great seeing you guys. Thanks for listening. I'm out of here. Bye. Wow. That was, huh. That just happened. Anyway, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Sorry. Okay. I just <clears> want to <throat> see how Dan handles this by himself. <laughs> Uh, you know, Bruce, if you ever left, I'd be right out the door behind you. I couldn't do this without you. Crickets. <laughs> well, uh, let's look at some Babel Conference feedback from a couple episodes ago. For Literary Treks 276, there's a line we can't cross. Uh, this was a really fun episode. This was how to write Star Trek novels with David R. George III and Dayton Ward. Uh, we've got a lot of really great feedback to this episode, so we're going to kind of pick and choose a little bit from some of the feedback here. So Stefan Seitz says, a fantastic podcast. I love all these insights in the processes involved of writing and publishing novels and in how these authors get started. A great behind the scenes special. The only sad part is they are not so open to new talents as back when Strange New Worlds happened. Thank you all involved. Live long and prosper. Well, thank you, Stefan. And yeah, that is kind of too bad. I do miss the Strange New Worlds contest. And, you know, we've seen a lot of great writers enter the Star Trek world via the Strange New Worlds contest. So, yeah, it's kind of too bad that it's a little bit more closed than it used to be. Well, I was just looking at a comment here from Rees Morgan that says something that bothered me way more than it should have in the Q conflict issue number six was Julian's genetic enhancements are mentioned openly at one point even though as he is wearing the green shouldered season one to early season five uniform of ds9 that shouldn't be public knowledge to the other crew members yet of these versions of the crew i'm pretty sure it's o'brien that he's talking to about it that's true because he was not in that green shouldered uniform when it was revealed about his genetic enhancements so oops Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I did not catch this, and I'm kind of embarrassed that I didn't catch this. That was a great catch, and it was not public knowledge until much later. And even though O'Brien was friends with Julian at this point, it's pretty clear from the episode where it's revealed that O'Brien had no idea as well. So, yep, whoops on the part of the writers there. Nice it's catch. It's an alternate timeline caused by Q that missed, I don't know. I'm stretching it. That doesn't work. Forget it. Definitely. So Francois Boulet says, thank you, Dan and Bruce, for hosting this fantastic episode. Very insightful and quite the master class. I'm in awe of the gener author's generosity, taking the time to talk about their respective projects and passions. It's always a pleasure reading their novels. Amazing podcast as always. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And yes, we do really appreciate the authors taking the time out of their busy schedules to talk about this stuff with, uh, with, you know, the fans of the books and, you know, really being generous with their time and, uh, efforts in, uh, bringing this stuff to us. So thank you for that. And then Kay Frick here is saying about the future of tie-ins and how they're in great hands at, with, Kirsten and Dayton and David Mack involved in the shows or the licensing and all that stuff. She's like, hmm, maybe there's room for Keith R.A. DeCandido to join the cat herd. Wouldn't we <laughs> like to see him back 
I mean, he's been on the show too, so you know, I'd love to see him writing something. Oh, definitely. I I love his novels. Would definitely love to see him back. Well, Kimberly Lawler says, it was fascinating to hear Dayton and David talk about how they got their start, what their writing process generally is like, and the issues unique to writing tie-in fiction. One thing I took away from the interview is that Margaret Clark sounds like a seriously impressive editor. It's so rewarding as a reader to have story continuity across these novels with actual consequences and development for characters instead of the reset button story of the week novels that existed early on 30 years ago. So I really appreciate the dedication and affection these authors and editors have for Star Trek. I hear here to all of those comments. Margaret Clark uh, does an amazing job with the Star Trek line. And I've loved the novels we've gotten in the last few years. I love the old ones too, but there's been something really special about this shared continuity for sure. And Oz Trekkie says, awesome to hear how novel creation processes work. Sad to hear my tweet writing ability will not get me noticed by the powers that be. I'm so sorry about that, Oz Trekkie, because you do some great tweets, I must say. And uh, he also mentions how he's a little disappointed with the Q conflict series. Um, yeah, I think we all kind of were a little disappointed with that one yeah the ending yeah i think wasn't as strong as it could have been but uh still some entertaining stuff along the way i guess well thank you guys all so much for your comments uh we didn't get to everyone's comments this week because there was so much great response to that episode i think uh, that was a fun episode for us to do, and I'm really glad you all enjoyed it. Uh, if you have a comment you want to make, please go to the Babel Conference, leave a comment yourself as well. Uh, the discussion continues there. You know, it's not just what, you, what we say on the show and what we talk about here. The community of listeners really gets going in the Babel Conference as well. So thank you guys all so much for your comments and keep them coming. Well, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, we are talking about the newest Star Trek Discovery novel this week, The Enterprise War by John Jackson Miller. And joining us to discuss this novel is the author himself. John, thank you so much for coming back to the show. Yeah, glad to be here. Excellent. Well, first of all, uh, one of the things I, I want to jump right into this novel because I, I really enjoyed it. I'm going to say that right off the top here. Um, one of the things that's interesting about this, and Bruce and I were talking about this, this is actually the first Star Trek Discovery novel to take place during the time period of the Star Trek Discovery series, which is kind of cool. Yeah, I guess it is. Uh, you know, I was approached uh, in, I guess it was the late spring of 2018 to do, um, tell the story of where Pike and Spock were during the first season. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was only when it's, once I got into it that I realized that's a long period of time, uh, <laughs> because we, we know, you know, they, 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 tr we try not to get into specific dates too often, but there's the specific date right in the, uh, you know, first episode of discovery for when the, uh, the Klingon war happens. Uh, then we know that, uh, that Burnham goes to prison for six months because they say six months later. Uh, and uh, then, of course, we have the whole uh, time jump that happens later in the first season, and that has a number two. And so, you know, I'm looking at a minimum of 15, 16 months uh, that this covers. Uh, and again, you know, given the work that I've done before, 
uh, particularly with Star Wars, I try to keep a very small footprint for the amount of time that my stories take place during. <laughs> uh, but, you know, this was a case where, you know, it, it needed to be, it had to be long. And so I said, okay, I want to tell a kind of story that will really sprawl, where it will be something where, uh, you know, the changes that take place during it, uh, you know, you, you necessitate it being a year and a half, which it pretty much almost is. Mm -hmm. That's actually one of the things that I totally forgot about when I started reading this novel was how much time this takes, because I remember as I was reading, kind of surprised, like, oh, wow, we're really covering a lot of time here. And then I remembered, yeah, it's the entire first season of Discovery. And like you said, there's those jumps. So um, well, I, I had to reverse engineer what the timeline was, in a sense, from the scripts, because not only are those those two elements that we already had, but we also find out that Ash Tyler is imprisoned for a certain number of days. That number of days is spoken. Uh, now, of course, it might not be Earth days. <laughs> it might be somebody <laughs> else's days. Uh, but, uh, but again, you know, I kept using all these things and sort of saying, okay, uh, you know, how much time do I have to play with? What's happening back home when you know, various events in my book are happening? Uh, and then we just sort of look in on them every so often uh, through the, the way that the book is structured. You probably have a better timeline of discovery than the writers do at this point because you're trying to make it all <laughs> fit in. And that's a daunting task because you were given this assignment. You said you mentioned 2018 and that's when season two, you know, was in production. So yeah. how yeah, how connected were you in getting the script so you could write this? Um, I am uh, contracted not to reveal sources and methods, as they say in the CIA. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to get into specifically what I had, other than you know, I had, I had certainly, you know, I had uh, uh, the participation of Kirsten Beyer in the story group, uh, or of the uh, the writers' room rather. Uh, I, I had Kirsten uh, all along advising uh, and answering questions when I needed. Uh, and, uh, of course, you know, specifically what I had on season two, uh, well, by the time I'm done, I've actually got season two, uh, because, uh, the, by the time we're in the final go round of proofreading, uh, you know, the last episode of season two had already aired. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, it, it's, it's not really in anybody's interest uh, e even the even the fans <laughs> to nail down every single thing to a specific calendar day. Uh, you know the you know, this is a this is a thing that you know certainly Star Wars fans got obsessed with uh, in building their timelines. Uh, and the, the fact is the you know the 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 answer to the question how many stories can fit into a year <laughs> uh, or in between you know episode four and episode five uh, should be as many as we want to tell. Uh, it, it should be as, as many as we can. Uh, you know, Spider-Man has been in college, uh, you know, for 20 years at a time <laughs> or in high school for 20 years at a time. And he keeps going back. Uh, so, uh, again, you know, the more important question is what order should you read the stories in? What I try to do here is just say, OK, here are here are the mileposts. Um, if they were to go back to our, you know, the the you know, the. Uh, the Federation at any point in the story, here's what's going on. Uh, and uh, it kind of puts in a new light, uh, I think, uh, some of uh, the, the, uh, the issues that we see dealt with in the TV show, because 
you know, again, we do have them uh, saying yeah, they were kept off of the grid, they were kept off of the playing field uh, during the Klingon War. Uh, and, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the things that I tried to do is, um, you know, they, even though I knew I was going to have this thing where they were going to get into a war of their own, and it was going to take, you know, eight, nine months to resolve, I also knew that I had to have a sequence, a fairly long sequence, uh, establishing what we saw in the TV show that they were upset about being left out. Uh, and that that kind of covers uh, you know section one of the book. There's you know, the book sort of organized into five sections uh, that all take place at different places of the timeline. Uh, and uh, if if anybody uh, has the the concern that the book is starting slowly, uh, well, that's Pike's concern too, because <laughs> the the entire first portion of the book is indeed uh, yeah they can't go. They they have to stay on station. They have to stay where, where, where they're at. This establishes that resentment, that concern. Uh, we have the conversation between uh, Pike and the, uh, the Star, Starfleet Admiral Terrell uh, about the specifics of why they were kept out of the war. This is even before we're in a situation where they have no choice but to stay out of the war. They couldn't go back if they wanted to. Uh, and, and so, again, by, you know, sort of setting up the, the, the milestones in the story for this is about when this is happening during season one, uh, you know, that allows us to tell our own independent story within that. Uh, but yet also you'll always know where you are in the regular TV show. Yeah. And thank you for doing it in that manner, instead of just Starfleet telling them to stay away and they're just sitting out there for more than a year. It's like, yeah, it starts <laughs> off with them being told to stay away. But then they're in circumstances where they can't come back. So, yeah, it's and, and it almost becomes a running joke. Yes, <laughs> they, keep getting, they keep getting these messages. Don't come back, and it's like, okay, yeah, I don't know what I don't know what kind of spoilers we're going to get into here, but you, they can't come back. <laughs> uh, quite a lot of this book, uh, and we we will uh, we'll we'll kind of try to do the first little bit mostly right. spoiler free uh but we will give a warning and get into spoilers a little later for sure, sure. Uh, so for people who haven't read the novel yet first of all what's the matter with you go get it and read it uh but second of all the enterprise is surveying this the pergamum nebula uh that's the mission that they're on when they're told by admiral terrell to stay away and then like you say over the course of the novel things happen <laughs> to yeah. trademark and uh, they can't really go back uh, in this nebula. They encounter, they, they kind of have this brush with these pirates, the Lurians. Uh, and first of all, I have to say, I love when you bring the Lurians into the story. It's great to see Morn's people again. Um, and also, and we'll talk about this a little later. I noticed there's a little bit of a tie-in to uh, Absent Enemies, your your Titan ebook as well. That's right. That's right. It's uh, it's it's one of those things where uh, it is uh, it's not not an Easter egg, <laughs> it, but it it was a case where uh, you know my intention had always been that uh, you know if I'm going to write about these characters, uh, I you know, I can I can easily tie it together with uh, what I had already established. Uh, over in that of the story, uh, and uh, and so I took that opportunity. Uh, and so readers who have not gotten absent enemies, they should read it after Enterprise War, simply because 
uh, well, it comes after it in continuity anyway. <laughs> yeah, I definitely want to read it again after this now, just to kind of refresh my memory a bit. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you characterize the Lurians, uh, and especially their captain, Baladon, who's a little bit different from the, the rest of his crew in a few ways. Yeah, I, I wanted to have a guy here. You know, first of all, you know, we kind of do a, a, a little bit of a head fake as we're starting the story uh, that, okay, these are going to be our bad guys. These are going to be our enemies. Um, you know, I, what I needed to do, I had already done a trilogy called Prey, uh, which uh, came out uh, in 2016, where, you know, we, we, we go early to meet uh, the, you know, the, the group of, uh, you know, Klingon assassins that's out there. And we, we see an operation from their point of view. And I did not want to do a sequence, you know, starting the book off with the villains uh, where, you know, it was exactly like that. And so instead, I wanted to show that, uh, okay, this is, this is who we think are going to be our villains. And then we see exactly how wrong we are. Uh, <laughs> we see how efficient uh, the Boundless are, how much better at everything they are. Uh, and what I, what I like about Baladon and how he connects to this is you know, he has this arc that goes on through the book uh, where he buys into uh, you know, the, the, uh, what the Boundless are about. Uh, you know, he's very dissatisfied when we first meet him. Uh, and we can recognize through him why uh, you know, people who... And, and what we have here is we have this Bermuda Triangle uh, nebula, the, the, the Pergamum. People wander in, they don't come out. The reason they don't come out is because they, they wind up uh, you, you know, shanghaied or, 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 or drafted or pressed into service, uh, whatever the correct word is these days, uh, into, into somebody else's war. And uh, Baladon is very much uh, in, is somebody who uh, you know, is, is thankful that it happened eventually. Uh, and he gives uh, uh, our other Enterprise character, uh, Connolly, somebody to play off of uh, through the whole book, uh, because you know that's a case where that character is is having to cope with the fact that he might not get to go back to Earth, uh, that he might be stuck there forever, uh, and this is what life is going to be about. So yeah, uh, Baladon, I, I really enjoyed writing him. Uh, have definitely enjoyed uh, listening to the audio book by Robert Petkoff. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd given him. You know, the advice, uh, uh, or the, I'd give the producers the advice. Yeah, this is basically Max von Sydow here. Uh, he's <laughs> gravelly, uh, uh, you know, he, he can be funny, but it's a, it's a, it's, it's a dark black humor uh, that, that uh, he, you know, just drips from him uh, constantly. And, uh, you know, by the time we get to the end of the book, uh, you know, he and, uh, and Connolly are, are very much, uh, I don't know if I want to say friends, uh, but uh, they're they're uh, they they kind of are buddy copping their way through this entire uh, you know, situation here. That's perfect. I you know actually just just since you brought it up, I've heard a lot of people really praising Robert Petkoff's work. I haven't listened to any of the audiobooks myself, but I've heard nothing but praise for the work he's done with the Star Trek novels. So it's good to hear that uh, that continues with this one. He he does dozens of voices, uh, dozens, and you know, in the Prey trilogy, 
I think it was over 150. And yeah, there were there were cases where he was doing you know five and six female Klingons, and yet he's got some register to go to that, that you know sounds like them. And you know, it's it's not the case where you know you can go off and do a different you know, earthly accent uh, to to give you know some of these characters uh, you know a different sound. Although he does do great earthly accents, uh, <laughs> and in particular. Uh, you know his his uh, his doctor uh, Galagian, uh, uh, the uh, the in chief engineer, just slays me. Uh, he he just does this wonderful uh, you know accent for this Armenian uh, uh, physicist that uh, is is sort of thrown into uh, the Enterprise mix in this book uh, and becomes the latest engineer in in what I discover was really a revolving door of engineers that were uh, running Pike's Enterprise. Yeah, I was wondering that because when the book starts and it's referring to the new engineer, I thought, oh, it's going to be Scotty, this young engineer of the Enterprise, and then it's not. And then I love how it is this revolving door, just like in The Next Generation, the first you know season had a revolving <laughs> door. It's almost like every Enterprise that launches can't keep an engineer, and then finally one sticks. Well, you know, I was going back through all of the, all the previous novels and the comics, uh, you know, no, no chief engineer was named in the, the cage. Uh, and yeah, I was, uh, I, you know, and of course we had a, uh, a chief engineer that was uh, in the previous uh, discovery book, uh, Desperate Hours. Uh, and there's yet a completely different chief engineer that's named in discovery. Uh, and Kind of the way that I approached this, and I did it with both Galagian and with uh, with uh, with Connolly, uh, is even though I was using characters that were going to appear, some characters that were going to appear in the TV show, I wanted to be careful uh, not to establish too much for those characters in case somebody decided to use them again. Uh, and you know, the last thing you want to do is add a lot of depth to a character. Uh, that, uh, you know, that ends up getting overwritten or something like that because, you know, uh, the, the, this thing is a moving target. The, this is a shared universe. Um, I felt more comfortable uh, with Galagian being basically my own guy uh, and also with Connolly, knowing what happens to Connolly pretty early in season two. <laughs> uh, I, I, I had, I had, I, I felt, I felt like, Okay, I could actually let them be who I wanted them to be, uh, and uh, you know I'm I'm not in danger of saying they're an only child, and suddenly you know there's an episode of a short trek or something like that one day, and they show up, and they're they're you know they've got five brothers and sisters. So wanting to keep Galagian as you want him to be, did you base him off someone in particular? Uh, no, not really. Not you no, know, not not really. I, I I think what I what I was trying to go for is. Yeah, every one of the past uh, engineers has, uh, you know, been shown as this wonderfully competent person who uh, basically knows knows everything, uh, and and is comfortable in a Jeffrey's tube as 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 he is uh, or she is somewhere else. Uh, and uh, what it, what occurred to me is that the Enterprise is a floating laboratory. Uh, it is it is the flagship of the science uh, you know, division, more or less, of Starfleet in the sense that they're out there doing cutting edge uh, research. And 
you know, I figured that Galagian would probably be, I don't actually say this in the book, I don't use this phrase, but uh, you know, the way that Enterprise looks when we see it uh, with the swept back nacelles and the kit that it's got uh, that has changed in between the cage and, and Discovery, you know, I, I refer to that just personally as the Galagian configuration. He was brought aboard for this refit uh, because they were going to go to the Pergamum Nebula and they were going to be basically you know, swimming around in, in you know, Pike says it's like swimming in glue, uh, trying to navigate. Uh, they, they needed a specific uh, you know, design of enterprise that would allow it to go places. And, uh, and so that's kind of what happens is, um, you know, I, I, I decided, well, I'm going to put the guy who actually did this design work on Enterprise for this first year or for this, for this period of time. And again, they think it's a milk run, so it doesn't matter uh, that, 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 that he's there. And of course, uh, you know, we end up throwing him into the deep end. And I mean, really the deep end, as we'll get into with the spoiler section, uh, I, I, I figured out ways to uh, make his life difficult. And uh, that in, in, in turn made everybody else's lives difficult. But yeah, I really enjoyed, uh, I really enjoyed writing him. And, and uh, that, was, uh, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, there were kind of almost shades of uh, Star Trek Titan kind of kind of did the same thing. They had the designer of the ship as the chief engineer, Commander Rahav Ray. Um, but this this guy definitely seems more of kind of a lab bound type person than hands on. Well, he's that, but he's also one of these guys who would be on cable TV every thirty minutes, uh, <laughs> you know, talking about uh, his latest thing. He 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 uh, he luxuriates in the celebrity that comes from his discoveries. He's excited about science. He wants everybody to know about it. He, he's an evangelist for it. Uh, and, and, you know, he's, uh, you know, Pike describes during this early period that he's on the ship that, you know, it's just, it's just like a, you know, a, 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 a scientist to- a cocktail party down there in engineering. Every time he goes down, the concern <laughs> simply is when they get into trouble, what's he going to do? And so, um, you know, I, I figured, uh, this is where we've got more than a year to let this play out. Uh, that allows me to have uh, that character have an arc and mm-hmm. and go through a lot of changes. Doctor O. <laughs> he's again. I the 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 chapter where he's introduced in the audiobook, It just floors me. Uh, I, he's he's doing these voices, and it's just if you can find an audio clip of that. That's it's just wonderful. Oh, wow. oh I'm I'm gonna have to pick that up now because this sounds really great. <laughs> Well, let's talk a little bit about the uh, the true enemies or the true antagonists of this story. We eventually encounter uh, this group called the Boundless. Uh, this was a really interesting um, kind of uh, presence in this novel. They're like you said, they capture people and kind of conscript them into their army unwillingly. And put them inside these battle suits, these these full armor battle suits that kind of take care of every function they could possibly need taken care of. And they never, ever leave these suits. Um, where did the idea for this group come from and, and kind of that concept? Because I, I just that was really fascinating to me. Well, I'd uh, done a few uh, Halo short stories and, and comics uh, or uh, but. 
it wasn't really so much for that. It, it, you know, they, they are. And of course, I wrote Iron Man for a year and I, I did the Mandalorians and in, in, uh, in, in Star Wars. Um, but to be honest, uh, it, I, I was almost looking at these guys uh, uh, more as, uh, oh, you know, what, what's the Pacific Rim word <laughs> for the for the for the for the big uh, for the big uh, kaiju or whatever is the giant, the giant, the giant Shogun warrior sort of outfits. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it, it, it's almost as if they're inside tanks uh, where it's just it's. The, the the devices are tending to their you know physical needs uh, you know constantly uh, it is it is armor they're manipulating things they're they're punching things um, and we also as we got into it we realized okay they actually have to be able to hear each other through their faceplates uh, otherwise everything ends up in italics because that's what we use for everything that's a radio broadcast uh, and. Uh, I, I, my proofreader, uh, you know, Scott and I were looking at this and we realized there would be entire chapters in italics That's true, yeah. if we, if we went that way and we, we just weren't going to do that. Uh, I said, I said, so these are like motorcycle helmets. You can kind of hear them if they're in the same room with you. Uh, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll just do it that way. Uh, that's, uh, that's Scott Pearson. Scott Pearson and I had wonderfully, wonderfully, uh, detailed, crazy, you know, conversations in the notes of this book about how things worked and about uh, about enterprise and what belonged on Pike's Enterprise in this era and what didn't. Um, but but yeah, uh, the balance. What I wanted to do is uh, I kind of when when I did the Mandalorians in Star Wars, um, I was doing a roving nomadic army that. Uh, in order to do what they needed to do in the time frame that my Knights of the Old Republic comics were set, they had to actually go from being nomads to conquering the galaxy or nearly doing so in three or four years. Um, and so I did a lot of beats in that comic series about the logistics of how that would work. They have war forges, they, they indoctrinate people, they're, there's all this stuff of how they could possibly do it. And then I had all the other cultural stuff of, you know, the backlash within their own culture to, you know, being shaped into this situation uh, that, that they had to be for, uh, to get them, to get them to where they were in the next part of the timeline. And I said, well, what if I rethought that here? And uh, I took, uh, I took a, uh, I took a, um, you know, an armored force like this, uh, and I gave them uh, much more of a structure in terms of uh, you know, something that we could easily understand how they fit together, how they work. Everything is designed around the number five. Uh, you know, there's there's uh, five carriers to a wave. There's five uh, troop ships to a uh, to a uh, carrier, uh, or rather to a to a uh, uh, to a carrier. Uh, you know, there's uh, five drop ships to each one of these. Anyway, the, the way it works out is is it's all based on fives, in part because they want it to be as easy as possible for the new recruits to figure out. Uh, and I I wanted to also reflect with this particular outfit, um, you know, both the logistics of how they get around, uh, but also that a lot of time had passed while they were doing this. Uh, this isn't something like the Mandalorian War where it's three years. These guys have had centuries. And over time, uh, you know, they've developed their own 
culture surrounding it. And there is this sort of dynamic that that my friend uh, uh, I, I, I mentioned him in the in the in the uh, the end of the book, Captain Singleton, uh, 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 old friend of mine who he advised me on some of the military stuff uh, that I came up with. He's, he said, one of the first things you got to do is make sure that all the units hate each other. Uh, <laughs> that all of the, all of the, uh, because there, there is this, there is this dynamic of, uh, you know, the Navy's great. The army sucks. Yep. The army's great. The Navy sucks. Yep. Uh, the, there is this dynamic. of Our, our unit is really good at things. Uh, theirs is not. Uh, and so there's this pride that is associated with Cormigan's unit with her outfit uh, that uh, exists despite the fact that we see people moving from position to position to position to position as the attrition in this war goes on. Uh, you know, I, I wanted, because I have over a year to play with here, I wanted with Baladon to show how somebody could logically go from, you know, recruit, if you want to call it that, to captain in the course of a year, uh, just by doing his job right, uh, and by surviving. And that really is how it works with the, with the, with the, uh, with the, uh, with the boundless is, uh, Cormigan even says something to that effect that, um, you know, the, the, uh, the good soldiers are the ones that survived and the ones who aren't won't survive anyway. So, uh, by definition, the people in her unit are the best there are. So, I, I think this might be a good time to kind of get into spoilers. Do you think? Oh uh, yeah. Bruce? Let's get into that. All right. Let's jump in. So of course, uh, a number of our enterprise crew members get uh, recruited with quotes around that word <laughs> into this army. Uh, we've got Spock yeah. and Connolly are kind of the two main ones we follow. There's a few others. Uh, Galka, uh, who's a crew member and Mouse Malche. I'm not sure. Uh, the Antaran crew member, along uh, with Mouse. Mouse. Yeah, okay. Yeah, Mouse is. Yeah, he's he's from another group. Yeah. Okay. He's he's uh, Mouse actually is from one of the one of the civilian uh, ships that gets uh, kidnapped. Oh, okay. I see. That's right. He's an Antaran. Um, and 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 in total, there's about thirty crew members of the Enterprise that were captured off this planet, if I'm remembering correctly. And uh, they all find their way That's into right. the service here. And they, of course, get placed on the front lines with the war against this great enemy, the Rengru, that we learn just little bits about as, as we go through. Uh, what was kind of the, the inspiration for this setup between this uh, kind of perpetual war between these two groups of people? And, and we'll talk a little bit about the big reveal at the end, of course, uh, a little later for sure. Well, this war had to have you know, gone on for centuries without metastasizing. It had to have, it did not escape this nebula. Uh, so it, it's a stalemate uh, that has gone on all this time. And of course, everything about who the Rengru really were and what they were really doing, uh, you know, sprang from my sort of origin story for these people and their planet. Um, but the, the what, what, I, what I enjoyed about it was neither... Spock and Connolly, uh, nor the Boundless, really know what's going on. Uh, so we have this sort of rolling reveal that's happening. Uh, you know, we, you know, Spock and Connolly find out who the Boundless are first and what they're doing, 
and then they discover something about the uh, the Rengru, and they see the Rengru, and it, it takes a long time uh, for you know them to actually realize you know that this is this is more than it seems because the Federation responds to meeting aliens in a different way than um, you know than than the the Boundless do. Uh, you know, their you know Spock's first instinct is to open communications, and the Red Group, uh, rather the uh, the Boundless, are like, "Okay, you're an idiot. What are you doing? You, you you don't know. You're you're this is this is a horrible thing." And of course, ultimately, it turns out you know, that he's right, but he can't be right then. Um, the the time frame on which these guys need to establish communication is very long. And it cannot happen in any of the encounters that the Boundless normally have with them uh, because they, they end quickly. I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, it, it, in a sense, this is a bit of a thought experiment with, uh, with you know, if you want to go back to the colonial Marines and the aliens uh, from, the, from the Aliens movie. Uh, you know, you know what, if, what if the aliens were trying to do something beneficial? Uh, and, and that sort of reverses the whole thing that sort of turns it all on its head. Uh, and, uh, but I, again, I just wanted there to be this fog of war everywhere. Uh, you know, Pike, uh, his arc, you know, since we're getting Pike from Jeffrey Hunter to, uh, to Anson Mount, uh, Jeffrey Hunter is just about to quit when we see him in the cage. He has lost, what is it? Uh, you know, three people on Rigel seven. It's just, it's just nobody. And, and, and he can't handle it and he's going to hang it up. And so I I started his arc even earlier uh, with a prologue when he's a kid of, you know, I can't leave anybody behind. And we hit him immediately with, okay, you've lost 30 people. And, and, uh, you know, and and he doesn't know because he doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't know who these people are. Uh, You know, he's facing a mystery of his own. Uh, you know, why were they taken? Were they taken? Are they alive? Uh, you know, e- even before we get to any of these questions about how to deal with them. Uh, so, uh, but again, with with each one of these things, I try to I try to spread it out how we're doing these reveals because again, yeah, this is a this is a story that takes place over so much time, and uh, you know, it's it's something where you know, particularly. You know, when Enterprise is in the situation that I put it into uh, in the in the fourth section of the book, uh, you know, there cannot be a snap fix to it. There can't be an immediate you know, resolution for it. And so, yeah, the, by the time we get to the, the end of the book, uh, you know, we realize that uh, the, the Boundless know about as much about their enemy as, as we do. And um, in fact, the, uh, the Enterprise crew knows more. Uh, because again, the way they they handle the the, the encounters. Yeah, and, and we'll get more, of course, to the end of the book as as the show goes on. But yeah, it really is into the last like two three chapters that we even learn about the Rengru and who they are. So that's interesting how that works. And I like the shades of Pike, like you're saying from the cage, because you give a backstory about his him dealing with loss and responsibility. So we get with the childhood background of that, that kind of leads into what we saw in the cage, but then there's aspects of that, as you're saying 
throughout this book. It's not just, it just doesn't hit you just in one chapter. It's just little bits here and there throughout the chapter. I kept seeing a blend of the Anson Mount and the cage portrayal of, of, of Pike throughout this book. And I thought it blended real well together. Yeah. I mean, if we look at it, there's this, there's this, um, there's this gradation that goes on in the book. He loses one person in the prologue. He loses three people on Rigel seven. He loses 30 people in the second section. He loses a hundred people uh, or something like that. Or if it was 70 odd. Uh, so his losses continue to no pun intended mount. Uh, and, and, and then, and then, uh, and then we, we, we basically bury him uh, on this, on this planet where he has no choice, but, to face these things by, all right, we're just going to have to pull ourselves up and, and, you know, flip the ship over and, and, and do what we need. To <laughs> oh, I love to that part, out. that ship flipping. <laughs> the yeah. That was awesome. That was, that was, uh, that was my, um, you know, this book went through a number of iterations in terms of when we we're plotting uh, that scene was uh, that whole sequence. That was my, you know, this is it. This is, this is the thing I want in the book, no matter what. Uh, you know, I, I I was toying with the idea of calling it Enterprise Down, but I figured mm. that probably uh, that that probably communicated too much what was going on here. Uh, but uh, but no, I mean it, it's it, and and that was again another case where I was able to do a thought experiment with uh, with another one of my high school buddies who was a big Star Trek fan, the guy who introduced me to fandom, uh, Ken Barnes. I got on the phone with him and I said, okay, here's what people think about what would happen to the enterprise in this situation. We're going to figure it out. <laughs> we're going we're to do the math, we're going to do the physics, and we're going to figure out how they would get off this world. And, and so, uh, but yeah, but that, that was a case where a cool moment fit into a narrative. It fit into, a, it fit into the characters' uh, lives. It fit into Pike pulling himself up from, uh, you know, from the bottom. Uh, and going from being immobilized, uh, which of course, yeah, that's another theme that's going on constantly. Is you know, we 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 kind of know what his future is already, and that mobility and being able to move around is going to be important to him. Uh, uh, but uh, yeah, it, it's it's something where he has to be able to function either way. He has to come to terms with the fact that he will be helpless in some situations. He has to come to terms with the fact that he's not going to be able to save everybody. Uh, and yet he still has to keep breathing. Yeah, that was an incredible set piece. And uh, the the kind of engineering to when, when the Enterprise saucer actually lifts off and the fact that that played so well into Galadian's character arc, too, that he kind of had his eureka moment and, and yeah. you know, was able to do that, I thought played really well as well. And, you know, I try to be very, you know, honest with Galadian and his steps as he's going here. Um, you know, I didn't want him to become a miracle worker overnight. Uh, you know, the, the, the idea of flipping the disc over didn't come from him. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it comes from Spock and it comes from the, the helmsman. Uh, but he's, he's willing to say, okay, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, I am here to take these people's ideas and to reshape them. And now, in this case, he's there to actually have to execute them uh, and, and put them to action. Uh, but of course, you know, throughout this entire sequence, we're into, uh, you know, one of the things I had, uh, I had my, my Star Trek blueprints from Franz Joseph 
uh, here. And I, <laughs> yeah, I had, very cool. Uh, I had my, I had my Scotty's guide to the enterprise and I had everything out and I was just going over these things like, all right, what still works in this situation? What, what is powering stuff? Uh, you know, what, what, what things, uh, what things are there and what things are not. And one of the nice things is, you know, I kind of had the dodge that, you know, the, the Pike's enterprise, even the one we see in discovery is not this one yet. Uh, it is. It's not. It's not Kirk's Enterprise yet. So it it ha, it has fewer people aboard, has fewer decks. Uh, but even so, I try to play it as honestly as possible in terms of, you know, uh, the you know the uh, the the um, the the structure of the ship is fundamentally about the same as as it is for in Kirk's time, and things like uh, the observation area, which is in the we see it in the TV show. It's right over the landing bays. Uh, and, you know, that's the same way in, in, I decided that would be the same way in, in Pike's version too. Yeah, I totally pictured, I think it's in the conscience of the king we see that area. And yeah, that's what I was picturing during that part as well. Very cool. Um, we talked a little bit about him earlier, but I kind of want to go back to, uh, now that we're in the spoiler part, uh, Evan Connolly and his kind of character arc throughout this novel when I first see him in the television show, I mean, when, you know, he's rather unceremoniously offed. Um, I, I didn't like the guy and I don't think we're really supposed to like the guy there in that situation. And in this book, it was interesting, the backstory that you've given him and, and the experiences he goes through in this, you know, year and a bit here that really kind of inform his character and turn him into the character we see on in that discovery episode. Um, I, I really thought that was kind of cool. And then especially like we talked about earlier a little bit, his relationship with Baladon and how that comes about. I wonder if you might talk a little bit about how that relationship and that character evolved. Yeah. Because at the beginning of that, I thought, wait, is this that guy from the episode brothers? I think <laughs> it is like, I wasn't really sure. And yeah, I just love how he develops yeah. as we go through. Yeah, I, I I knew you know obviously what he would be like in the episode, and I, I if anything, uh, you know he he's even more jerky in in the episode than than I had uh, even imagined. Although I still did I still did uh, you know I, I I tweaked a number of points there to kind of show that he was always you know this person who uh, headstrong thinks he knows. Uh, thinks he knows the right way all the time. Uh, uh, he, he's somebody who uh, wishes to be more than just a scientist. Uh, he he. You know, I, I gave him a job in uh, in the science division that would result in him not being given much to do, uh, other than sit there and you know do a shift in on the bridge every so often you know, watching the rocks as they fly around or whatever, you know, he, 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 I wanted him to, uh, you know, be really sort of gung ho about put me anywhere, get me in the game, uh, get me someplace. This is not somebody who wants to sit on the bench. And of course that leads to baseball. And there's, he has this sort of, uh, you know, this is one of the nice things about Star Trek is it, it's on Earth. It's uh, in our universe. Uh, there, there is an Earth that's in Star Trek anyway. And we're able to draw upon uh, some familiar things. Uh, and so, you know, I, I'm able to, uh, you know, sort of get into, 
uh, you know, his, his interests. Uh, and also there's this metaphor for he wants to get in the game. He wants to get into things. And of course, baseball ends up having this completely other different, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, metaphorical level here because you have, uh, you know, you know, what, 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 what do they call a baseball team? A platoon. <laughs> you know, you have the idea of, you know, people being traded back and forth between these waves. Uh, and in, and in Connolly's case, he starts by making a joke about, you know, what are you, you going to trade somebody for a draft pick now or something like that. And then it turns out that he reshapes the economy of <laughs> the, to, to call it an economy is not really very, is is not is 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 not is not very kind, but you know it is it's something where he's able to reshape their whole way of thinking about how they deal with the prospects that they kidnap these people the people they haven't even taken over yet, and the thing is that Connolly, even though he's sort of getting get this head rush of being into all these things, first of all, it's horrible. And then it becomes more interesting to him as he realized that's where he's that's where he is, and and then he starts giving them these ideas. Uh, but he also has there in the back always the sort of notion that yeah, but these guys are still slavers. This is not a good thing. Right. There's there's a dark side to all this, uh, and in fact, you know that's kind of a that's kind of a side that's always in in professional sports anyway, this notion that individuals are commodities uh, to be passed back and forth, uh, you know, in, in exchange for money or in exchange for, for uh, future considerations or whatever. Well, here, these are people who are being taken against their will. Uh, and, you know, it ties into a, a, obviously, you know, sports are not like this, but it ties into a more dark history that, that uh, you can think about. Uh, and, and so, you know, Connolly is, it's an interesting arc for him. He, he, he always is holding out hope that he'll get back to enterprise. And once that, you know, light goes on again, that there might be a hope to do it. Uh, you know, he's, he's, uh, he's, he's getting involved again and he's starting to make deals that are really way beyond. <laughs> it, it takes, it takes somebody who's, uh, you know, a, a fairly egotistical, like you see in the TV show, to take it on himself to say, okay, I'll make you a deal. I'll trade you the transporters if you'll join us in the war against the Klingons. Uh, it takes a special kind of cat to get from here uh, in the beginning to there. Uh, that is not a deal that Spock would make. That is not a deal that just about anybody else that we see on Pike's crew would make. But you know, this Connolly guy, you can kind of see it. Yeah. And I feel like because he's been with the boundless for a long period of time, he wasn't that cat maybe in the beginning, but he's that cat yeah. now because he's had yeah. a different type of experience. He's been with these guys for yeah. months. He, he's been at the bottom. I mean, he's been dragging dead bodies. I mean, he's, he's, uh, he, he's somebody that, uh, you know, I, I was always, you know, I, I, one of the tropes that people get into with these things is Stockholm syndrome and, beginning to identify with the captors. Um, it was easy to have Baladon do that because Baladon's previous life was not what he wanted. And he was able to fit into the Balasa system, you know, pretty much like that. Um, 
uh, although when we when we when they first meet, uh, it, it seems like it's the worst day of his life. But this is a guy who you know, kind of like the Office Space guy. Every day was the worst day of Baladon's life up until he got taken over by the uh, the by the by the Balas. Uh, but you know, it's it's you know, Connolly uh, is you know, kind of uh, kind of uh, he has to go through an arc. He has to he has to go through. Uh, you know the the shock and horror of what he's in, and sort of go through the stages of denial, of the stages of grief with his previous life, and then he gets to this point. Uh, you know, a, a good I I think it's like ten months in, eleven months in, where he's he's sort of like, well, okay, here I am. I guess I'm a pirate. Uh, I, I I guess I'm in this thing, and uh, and and you know that is that's not an uncommon thing to see in uh, in fiction. Uh, 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 particularly pirates ship stories, uh, you, you know, going over to the going over to the dark side or whatever, going over and and, and becoming one of the one of the enemy at that point. Well, another thing that I really appreciated in this novel was uh, the links to the wider kind of literary universe, as well as, you know, Star Trek Discovery, the television show. And we talked a little bit about linking it to absent enemies with the Lurians and that sort of thing and the situation they find themselves there. Um, I also really liked uh, one of the things that I think changed with the story of Discovery was their decision to bring in Spock and uh, that side of Burnham's life, which kind of contradicted the first Discovery novel that we got, David Mack's uh, Desperate Hours. And I liked that you kind of brought that in and, and gave us a little bit of an explanation for how that could still fit in quite well. Yeah, I mean, look, the fans want things to work. We want things to work. Um, I realized uh, once I, you know, heard that line that sort of the couple of lines that sort of undid or knew about those lines that sort of undid what happened in the previous book, I realized, well, there's probably a way to fix this, and uh, with uh, with something low impact, uh, just a just a simple line saying, uh, uh, you know, this is, uh, uh, you know, they they, I, I think the line is something along the lines of you know, Spock is meditating and he thinks, uh, you know, that feels like such a long time ago. It already feels like years ago. And I bet she wouldn't even remember it now. Uh, <laughs> she would say the same thing. Uh, and, and that's my way of making all accounts true or all accounts correct. And, uh, you know, it, this is, uh, as I said out in Vegas, when somebody you know, asked at the panel about handling, you know, the, the various continuity issues that are, that are bound to come up in, uh, anything where you've got an active franchise, uh, as opposed to, for example, I, I just did the, the 40th anniversary uh, comic series for Battlestar Galactica. That is not an active series in terms of you know, new shows in production. So it was pretty easy to do whatever I wanted. Um, you know, I, I, I think that this is not our first rodeo in terms of uh, any of the people involved. Uh, and, um, you know, if there's a way to make things work, uh, and and do things to reconcile uh, with something fairly simple. It's a lot easier for us to put it in the novel than it is for, to get somebody to put it in the TV show. Yeah, and I like or, how you or, do the like you said. It's just a simple sentence, just a simple thing. It's not in your face. It's you're not harping mm -hmm. on it. You're not building a whole chapter around it. Just a simple no, little thing. No, and and so I mean that's that's all it needed. And 
you know, the, the, other, the other one that we've gotten questions about is uh, obviously Yeoman Cult. I was uh, going to bring that up. I saw you talking about that online with someone. Yeah, yeah Yeoman Cult. And, and again, that's simply because Yeoman Cult, as uh, credited and depicted and described in, uh, in, in uh, the last episodes of, of season two, uh, does not look like the Yeoman Cult that we remember. And uh, in my case, I, uh, I can't say again, because I just don't get into this sort of thing, uh, I say uh, what I've said about it is any story surrounding that, whether it exists or not, was not going to be mine to tell in this story. And mm. so uh, I wrote instead a line that remains true no matter what happens, which is, uh, you know, it, yeah, he, 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 there's, there's just a very simple line where, uh, uh, yeah, where uh, Pike's uh, Pike is thinking on uh, thinking about Colt, and he, he's he's saying that uh, you know she she she'd gone through a lot of changes, but she was still the same person he used to know. Uh, <laughs> boom! I mean, uh, you know, if if uh, if you see an episode that addresses what you saw, if you never see an episode that addresses what you saw. Uh, you know, of something, of anything, of whatever, you know, if, you know, it, it's, uh, my job is not to close doors. Um, you know, if I had been told, hi, your, you know, your, your job is to get, you know, you know, tell, tell this backstory here of this character or that character, or whatever, well, then I would do it. My job was to tell how Pike and Spock and the Enterprise ship got from, you know, the beginning of the uh, beginning of the Klingon war to the end of it, uh, to pretty much the front door of the discovery season two. And, and beyond that, um, you know, uh, one of my editors at star Wars used to say, when you define, you can find, um, you know, if I were to actually, you know, put in lines, uh, giving all sorts of backstories to characters that, uh, you know, are only going to have a line or two in a TV show that I'm aware of, uh, yeah, that could be confining to them, or it could be something that could be overruled later on. Uh, should those characters appear someplace else, something else in a live franchise? Uh, again, much different in uh, in a uh, in a in a franchise that uh, you know is it is it going anywhere? The uh, you know, there's a there's a character uh, in the Battlestar Galactica comic series that I gave a promotion to because I said why not. Uh, and it was actually just to address a coloring error because we we had colored her uh, we had colored her uniform wrong uh, with the color of command as opposed to uh, as opposed to the NCO color. Uh, but you know it's like well fine uh, here it's 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 okay to do because uh, you know we're not likely uh, although you know who knows uh, I didn't expect Battlestar Galactica to come back the last time uh, but it did. Well, speaking of bringing us to the doorstep of season two, that was something that I hadn't considered and hadn't uh, anticipated reading this novel was that this would butt right up against what we see uh, at the beginning of season two. And in fact, the the planet that Spock finds himself stranded on, you know, there's kind of that slow dawning realization of wait a minute, this is, this is what's happening right now is his encounter with the red angel. And I, th I think you described him wearing like a face mask 
uh, on the lower half of his face. And I was like, oh, that's kind of like the one that we saw when he's mind melding with, oh, oh, <laughs> and it just kind of all fell into place there. <laughs> and I thought that was really cool. I was not expecting that at all. Well, and in order to engineer something like that, um, you'll notice I had to take steps. Uh, I had to, I, I, I did not know, uh, you know, obviously when I came up with the original, original, original plot, uh, so this is before any episodes are on TV. Uh, you know, uh, we're talking about that's something that's long before costuming decisions have been made, long before a set has been designed for anything like that. And so, you know, my sense was I'll figure it out when we get closer and no more information. And and so, you know, I, I knew things later on, like, well, obviously he's he's on an ice planet. Well, that that affected where I put him. Uh, and, uh, you know, then he's wearing his, uh, his, uh, his cold weather gear. Well, now we show him wearing that. That's why when he's kidnapped from Susquehanna, he's not in the jungle. He's on, he's on the ice portion of that planet because that's his uniform. That's what he's wearing when he's abducted. And I came up with the notion that, uh, the boundless will let you have your personal effects they will let you have your uniform because they don't care. And they also had to let him have his tricorder because he's got a tricorder in that scene. Uh, so, um, and, and, you know, then it even goes down to things like, uh, you know, what, once I actually see the episode, you know, one of the last things I put in uh, were the, the idea of the Ventifacts. Uh, I, you know, we see him in this sort of, uh, ice grotto or not just something like that, but the, there's little, there's little ice, uh, pillars here and there. And so I, I started looking at, well, where would those appear or how, what would those be if they appeared naturally? Because, uh, where he was going to be was not going to be a populated place. Uh, and, you know, as it turns out, uh, you know, I was, I was playing civilization six on my computer and found out that there's actually a place in the, in the Sahara uh, where stuff like that is actually created from wind, and hmm. it can also be created from ice too, uh, on on a planet uh, like uh, like Spock is on, uh, and so I mean even little things like you know it's described as an ice planet, uh, even though it's in my story a moon. Well, I established that it had been a planet once, and it became a moon. Oh. Uh, so uh, <laughs> when uh, when the when it star burned out. So uh, yeah. And, all this stuff that is put together to link this stuff together uh, is, uh, it, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, what they pay me for. <laughs> That's why you're a tie-in author. <laughs> there you go. There you go. And, you know, there's, there's always a, there's always a, a, a blunder or two. I think I had a mention of the Delphic Expanse, which one word will fix it. Uh, and, uh, and again, you know, the, the only reason that I had that, uh, that problem was because uh, I was busy writing Iron Man and dealing with a new baby while uh, season three of, uh, of Enterprise was on. And so I didn't see the entire uh, Zindi season. Oh, wow. Uh, wow. And so that's another thing people ask is, uh, well, wait a second, you, you've got, you know, in the Boundless, you have these multiple different species in the armor. Uh, and is that inspired by the Zindi? And it's like, yeah, I didn't know anything more than the name uh, until this book came out. Now I'm like, okay, well, obviously I've got some streaming to do. 
but uh, but you know my my editors and proofreaders they did know and and obviously they didn't think there was it is a significant enough connection right. no. that it was worth mm. worrying about. Well, especially if Zindi, if there's different Zindi like that, that's bound to happen with other races and species too. Well, uh, and, and and honestly, it just comes down to the fact that it is multiple groups of species as part of this group. Right. You know, the, 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 you know, there's, it's a coincidence that there's five. Uh, yes, there's an aquatic, there's a reptilian, there's whatever, but, you know, what was I going to call him? I mean, that was, that was sort of, uh, you know, this, there's, there's one that's wolf-like. There's, uh, there, so it's, I think, you know, probably more, as I say, you know, there was, there was, you know, the background would have been more uh, inspiration from the Mandalorians and also from the Breen. Uh, at least the Breen as they've been described in the novels, uh, that we're going to use the armor to equalize you and to make you all just alike. And, and of course, that, that's something that goes much further back uh, than, than even you know, Star Trek or Star Wars. Uh, that's, 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 a very old, you know, that's a very old trope indeed in science fiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was thinking of the Breen as well with some of that, which I actually thought was a nice little... I don't know. It's just like a little bonus for the the novel readers, you know, well, to make that little uh, yeah, connection. There's, there's no shortage of military science fiction out there, and there's no shortage of military armored science fiction out there. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I I did a book called Overdraft, which uh, spun off of a short story I, that I had in a in a in a anthology called Armored, because it was all about these kinds of situations. And so, you know, it's it's there's there's uh, probably only so many ways to actually do this. And, <laughs> uh, and so my, my goal all along was let's not sound too much like starship troopers. Let's not sound too much like any of the, the main, you know, ones that are out there that most people would have heard of. So John, mm-hmm. if there was ever going to be a star Wars, star Trek crossover, I want you to write it and tie the Breen in with Leia's bounty hunter costume in return of the. Oh, Jedi. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, Wow, I hope I never see that. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, uh, Star, Star, Star Trek uh, has had some good crossovers. The, you know, the Planet of the Apes one is, is pretty clever. Um, and, yeah, you know, it, it's just, it's, I, I think uh, in particular, Star Wars has uh, kind of done itself a service by you know, sort of keeping itself on an island. Yep. Uh, and maybe we'll have an Indiana Jones joke here, here, or there, someplace. But <laughs> otherwise, it's a walled garden, and um, you know, and again, Star Trek because you have the multiverse, you can do all sorts of things. Yeah, uh, that's 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 cool. Well, we we touched on it very briefly, but we should probably talk a little bit about that final reveal at the end. Uh, so we've got the the numerous species all living together on this planet who have all kind of gone to war with the Rengru, uh, who they thought were one thing, but actually turn out to be another. Um, and, and, you know, a twist like this wasn't entirely unexpected. Like I knew from the hints that there was something else going on. Uh, but at the same time, like it had me guessing right to the end, like what could really be going on? What was kind of the inspiration for how that part of the, the story turned out? Well, uh, for one thing, I wanted to sort of, as I said, subvert the whole, you know, creepy crawly aliens trope. Uh, but also, this is very much a Star Trek thing. This is a this is a serious Star Trek twist. Uh, this is uh, this is something where, you know, this is 
a a planet that must have in the past experienced the symbiosis between these species uh, because it is in the most hostile place uh, that you can have a uh, a, a, a um, uh, you know a populated planet uh, in the heart of this you know terrible nebula uh, and so it, it we get the sense that the only way that the you know, the precursors to Cormagan's people, to all these other Boundless's people, the only way that they survive to evolve this long is that every so often when the star starts to cook, uh, you know, they are rescued, they are protected, they are shielded by this, these Rengru who are in a sense living armor. Uh, and of course, that's, that's sort of the fun about this is we realize that uh, you know, they sometime in between these things happening, uh, the uh, you know the other species have evolved to a point where uh, they you know don't recognize or understand what the Rengru are, and uh, when the Rengru uh, make their uh, you know sort of advance to try to protect them, uh, they reject it, and they uh, of course the irony is they create armor of their own, uh, and. Because the Rengru are, uh, I wanted to give them a very, uh, I, I wanted, I, I, again, this is a thing where you're trying to avoid tropes. I wanted them to have a hive mind in a sense, but I did not want them to have an omniscient hive mind that worked across, um, uh, worked across subspace or, or anything like that. I wanted only the Rengru nearby uh, Enterprise and nearby Una at the time to know what's going on. And, uh, you know, it, it, and because there has to be a reason why uh, you know, the fog of war is affecting the Rengru too. Uh, there's a line in there that they don't even really remember why they started doing this the way that they do it. It's just something they instinct instinctively do. And over the course of the war, they have shifted from we have to protect the people of Kadavu to we have to protect the people of Kadavu from these people who are trying to get in here and prevent us from protecting the people of Kadavu. And they no longer even sort of understand at that point that, uh, that you know, that's, that's who uh, the antibodies are. Uh, uh, that, 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 that's who these... Uh, these uh, that that's who that's who these um, uh, you know, the boundless are. In a sense, I wanted to. There's there's sort of there's always sort of a thing about uh, you know, it, it, this is an, an immune system turned against itself. Uh, in, in a sense of of uh, the the Rengru being overactive in protecting the the uh, Katabu. If the Rengru were better able to communicate. In short order, uh, you know, then you'd have uh, you'd have a meeting of the minds a lot sooner, and this thing would have worked itself out. Uh, but then we also you know, we get this moment at the end as well, where we get to see well what happens next. Uh, some will embrace it, some will reject it, and some will reject it, this situation violently. In the case of uh, the Quadeo character, uh, and so. Uh, you know, I, I, 
I don't know what's next for uh, all of the people of their society, uh, but it, it's clear to me that uh, the, you're sort of the, the lifers in the military, uh, like uh, like uh, Cormigan, uh, just may not be able to go back. And um, you know where they go from there is anybody's guess. Well, I think. Uh you know, the number five, it's interesting, comes up a lot in the book, which uh, is kind of fitting because I think this novel makes it five for five for great Star Trek Discovery novels. Um, oh my gosh, we're rating to... them with the author on. Well, no, no, they, <laughs> oh no, I uh, just mean all five Discovery five novels. novels. I, yeah. I think Dan's yeah. saying he's giving it a five out of five. I, I mean, I am doing that <laughs> as well, for sure. <laughs> oh no, and, and there's... And there's five sections to the book. There are, yeah. And yeah. there's, uh, and there's uh, another little uh, Easter egg that's uh, hidden in the sections as well. Uh, the section I, I've been doing that. I, I uh, it, you know, the prey thing. I did a word game with the section titles, uh, and uh, the one I have here is not quite so elaborate. But I still have not seen anybody find it yet. Oh man! Oh darn now it! Now I got the book. So I'm I have looking. to go back and read Absent Enemies, and I've got to go back and read. <laughs> The prey novels and this novel. <laughs> yeah, that's excellent. All right, on. I well, and, and, if, and the word game is not the one you think it is initially. So there you oh go. My gosh. Oh my well, god! Putting the challenge out there to our listeners. Yes. If you can yep. figure that out, let us know. <laughs> excellent. Well, I, I mean, I really enjoyed this novel. Um, I, I feel like with these discovery novels, they've just been getting better and better because I, I you know, the most recent one always seems to be my favorite and I really enjoyed this one. So, uh, well, I'll say, you know, in, in the case of, of this one, um, you know, I, I had a blast with it. Uh, it, it almost, you know, it could almost go without the discovery title in terms of it, it, it being a novel that could fit in anywhere into anybody's Star Trek shop, whether there is, you know that this is this is something where uh, you know it, it's it, it, it's something where uh, it's it's like an alternative season one to Discovery in terms of mm-hmm. it being a pathway to get into it. Uh, and I cannot doubt that there are going to be people that are going to read the book first before they see season one, uh, and they're going to have the opposite dynamics uh, to uh, you know to what the TV, the TV show watching people uh, felt, and this is what's kind of fun about it is it has to play both ways. Uh, it had to, had mm. to, I, I could not spoil what happens in Discovery either, uh, season one with with what I was doing, uh, but you know I do feel that you know is in terms of it being, um, it, it's got to be you know the most uh, of my Star Trek novels. Uh, it's certainly got to be the the most uh, reader friendly in terms of uh, you don't have to know anything going in, uh, and and also I think it it, it yeah, it's a, it's a nice lean story that does everything we intended for it to do. Uh, lean at four hundred and forty pages, but a, 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 a lean story. I mean, it's 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 one of the. Uh, it was refreshing to go to that after uh, the prey trilogy, which. Also did everything I wanted it to do, but it was 1,280 pages. Yeah. And so uh, there was a reason besides, there was a reason beside the license being out 
that you didn't see me for a while after that came out, <laughs> uh, because I just had no brain whatsoever for a good long while after that. Wow. I bet. Yeah. But uh, now well, I'm working on another uh, discovery book now. So that was, that was announced. Uh, Excellent. Yeah. I was just going to ask what you've got on the go. And uh, I, I'm, I'm guessing you can't really tell us a lot about that yet. I've told, I've told you all I've already, I've already told you what I can say, which is it is, it is, Discovery, although, you know, as we've seen, there are multiple ways to tell a discovery story. And, <laughs> uh, and so, uh, yeah, I can't, I can't give any more detail than that. Obviously, if I'm working on it now, it's a 2020 release, uh, unless I do something horribly wrong uh, and, uh, or get hit by a bus or something. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, that will be the next for me. I have a bunch of a bunch of reprint books coming out here later this fall. Uh, my most recent Star Wars uh, Adventures comic that I, I did for IDW, that is collected in uh, Star, Star Wars Adventures uh, Volume 8, Pop and Circumstance, which comes out, I think, in October. Uh, my Battlestar Galactica series called Counter-Strike, that's collected in a book from Dynamite that's coming out, uh, I think, also in October or November, something like that. And... Uh, uh, you know, I, I also have a Lion King book on the shelves right now. And if you were to tell me that uh, I, I would have a, uh, a original graphic novel tying in uh, with uh, what may end up being one of the best <laughs> best best selling movies of all time, I would not have guessed it would be this particular one. Uh, but apparently, it's already the the, the number one animated movie ever. Uh, the, so, uh, in terms of in terms of sales, so. Uh, that is that is a graphic novel which is out from uh, Dark Horse currently. Excellent. And uh, if our listeners want to follow you online and keep up to date with uh, everything you've got going on, where can they do that? Uh, that would be at uh, uh, on farawaypress.com on my website. Uh, JJM Faraway is my uh, Twitter handle. Uh, John Jackson Miller on uh, Facebook. And definitely, folks, when you read the book, uh, go out there and leave a review wherever you get books from, whether it's Amazon or Barnes and Noble or or, or wherever else. Uh, you know, these things build on themselves. And uh, and you know, the I yeah, this this book is is more more highly ranked on Amazon now in terms of you know its it sales than it was the week it came out. And that's because you know the fact that people are out there reading it and buying it and reading it and buying it causes their algorithm to wake up and, uh, and, and promote it to people. So uh, that's obviously, you know, something we all want to do. And of course there's already another new Star Trek book out today. So that's yep. <laughs> a book by my, by my friend, uh, Greg Cox. So, um, you know, that's, uh, that's, that's the Antares Maelstrom. I love these names. Yes. That's, uh, <laughs> Antares Maelstrom was like the name of my, uh, my, uh, uh, what was my traveler character. That's what it was. <laughs> Whatever the role playing game was, I used to play. Uh, nice. I've already finished it. You're fast. That's awesome. Excellent. And uh, yeah, when we get a title for your discovery novel and when the pre-order becomes available, everybody go out there and pre-order it because pre-orders are also really, really oh, yeah. great. Yes, for but, but here's an sales. idea. When, when we get the title reveal, why don't you do it on the show? Reveal it on literary <laughs> tracks. That would be you know, awesome. This is, the, this is the biggest challenge that we've got. This is something that, you know, obviously we discussed out in, in Vegas uh, the, the the mechanisms uh, for releasing this information are are so complicated because 
uh, things have to be fed into the ordering systems for every online bookstore in the world, and you never know when it's going to drop. So, uh, you know, it, I, I uh, you know, usually people in Germany will see it first because it'll be on their system. And of course, <laughs> when the Enterprise War cover came out, you know, I had been at a, an event all weekend and I had a copy back here of the cover ready to, ready to uh, you know, put on the table at the event. And it turned out, no, uh, <laughs> it wasn't until the next morning uh, when, it, when it comes out, when I'm uh, literally having breakfast at a Perkins uh, in, in, uh, in <laughs> Southern Wisconsin. And I have to go out to the, uh, to the parking lot and, uh, and do my photo shoot. So uh, again, you just never know when, when this stuff's going to drop. So, yeah, I think it would be great to do, but I don't think it works oh, that way. Wow. Well, maybe we'll do <laughs> breakfast at a Perkins sometime. <laughs> <laughs> I don't actually think I got to eat that day. I can see from the receipt that I did buy food, but I, it, was, uh, it was a very strange breakfast because I was busy doing the tweeting and everything else. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. We always really appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, every, anyone listening, if you're still listening and you haven't read this book – I think you're crazy, but well, go we, out, we just buy it. it for all of you. So <laughs> it's point. still worth a read though. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks very much. Thanks a lot. The thing I really love about doing the show is having the chance to talk to the authors. And I mean, we've said this on other shows too, but it's so cool when I sit there and I'm reading a book and I'm like, Oh, I'll get to talk to the author about it. And even before I was on the show, it was the same thing. I'd be like, Oh, I'll probably get to hear the author talk about it on literary tracks. Yeah, I mean, it really is a special privilege. Uh, and like you, before I was on the show as a listener, to be able to hear the author's thoughts and now to be able to like shape that conversation and ask the questions that I want to ask. That's pretty cool. I mean, these authors are great. And, and yeah, reading the novel, you know, there's a certain part you get to and you're like, ooh, I wonder what he meant by that or, or what he or she was thinking when they wrote that part, you know, and to be able to get that answer right from the horse's mouth, I think is excellent. <laughs> so here's a funny story. When I was reading the Antares Maelstrom written by Greg Cox, that's the other book that just came out recently. And Greg Cox is going to come on the next literary treks to talk about it, or at least that's the plan. Hopefully everything works out, but I was coordinating with him by email and I'm sitting there reading his book and in the middle of me reading his book, he emails me saying, well, I hope you know you enjoy the book, get back to reading. And I'm like, I am reading it. <laughs> it's like, how cool is it that I'm reading the book and the author's emailing me at the same time I'm reading the book? I'm like, how awesome is that? That's pretty cool. <laughs> well, it's been a lot of fun talking about emailing authors today, but it's not the only thing we've been discussing on the network. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, the ready room. But Larry, how do you know that there's not a house somewhere out there on the forge where Cybok's in the living room, Michael's in the living room, and there are like six other people in the living room that Amanda and Sarek and Spock never talk about? They oh, sure, they took us in for a while and they threw us in the house on the forge. The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. Wait, so what switched between your two lists? Calypso comes in. Runaway comes in second oh, of right, importance. Right. Okay. But Calypso comes in second in enhancement of the season. 
Okay. I see and really, even there. importance, I could probably, in my head, flip Calypso and Runaway. Because I don't mm. need Runaway. Standard Orbit. Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, is the best named movie of the first six movies. I think. Because from a marketing point of view, from a Star Trek point of view, it's just a great title. You know, not talking about the execution of the film. I just mean, it's a great title. The other movie titles were, eh, eh. You know, I mean, they weren't that creative. Literary Treks. So I, I think if you have an idea or a story for a Star Trek novel, it w- you would be better served if that came on the heels of the 10 pieces of fan fiction that you've written or whatever, or, or things that you've written on your own that, not, not necessarily fan fiction, but if you practiced as a writer and, and have honed your, your craft, because they're going to want you to be a, a good writer. Yeah, they're gonna, and and that comes back to you know it's they're gonna tie in editors, and this is not just Star Trek. This is anybody. They're gonna go with people who have demonstrated an ability to hit their marks, hit their marks clean, easy to work with, or at least able to work with. Um, and, and, and can do that on a, and can do that on a, you know, It's like okay, I did it once. No, okay, well now do it again. Now do it again. Now do it three times in a row. Now do it five times in this one calendar year. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. Well, you know, you could be getting your podcasts from Apple. Be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published, and please leave us a star rating and written review. And if you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, YouTube, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. I love the image of people just grabbing that RSS link. So, yeah, do that. (laughs) You are the RSS link. Goodbye. Goodbye. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, we think we're so funny. I love it. Well, if you'd like to keep all of our shows coming to you each week, and after that, I, I don't know, do you? You can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Just visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all of the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more. And those are all available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. And we have an iTunes comment, Dan. So we do from Mechanics, 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 something like that. (laughs) And it's a five-star review, a podcast for my people, he says. Yes, yes. After so long in the wilderness of being the only person I've ever met who was a diehard fan or fan at all of the Star Trek novels, finding this podcast was a breath of fresh air and a balm to what re- what little remains of my soul. Thank you for showing me I'm not alone, and also thank you for taking the book seriously, but not too seriously, that you cannot identify and call out the occasional stinker. Awesome. Thank you so much for that. And that's exactly how I felt finding this podcast way back in the day uh, when it was when it was Matt and Chris hosting it. So thank you. That means so much.
Same here. Yes, we all have to be united. I just said this the other day on Twitter, you know, like Trek Books Club and and Reading Trek Podcast and whatever is out there. We're all united. We're all the people. <laughs> Man, I, I want to go give out pamphlets now. <laughs> <laughs> here you go. Star Trek book pamphlets. <laughs> well, we'd love to also hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference. It's our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, in the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks, and it will come right to us. And you can find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. You can also find us on our Goodreads group, where we have bookshelves with all of our previously covered books, as well as a currently reading section so you know what's coming up in future shows. Plus, there are great conversations happening about the books and comics there as well. Just go to goodreads.com, search for Literary Treks, and click Join Group. One of us will let you right in. We'd like to thank Norman C. Lau, Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Chemutala, Justin Ozer, and Jeffrey Harlan for their support of the Trek FM network and for being associate producers for Literary Treks. Now, Bruce, when you're not fighting a desperate war with the Klingons, but sending a message to the Enterprise telling them to stay away for the fifth time, where can we find you? Well, you can find me at five different places. One is on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. The other place is on Instagram at Admiral Rex. You can find me on the Star Wars Report, which is a podcast about Star Wars. And you can find me on Live from the Edge with Brandy Jackala. When a new episode of Discovery comes out, then you can hear us live on YouTube. And of course, you can always find me in the Babel Conference. Very nice. <laughs> so, Dan, when you're not sticking up one of those armor suits that you live in for over a year, where can people find you? Right? It would be so bad. Oh, Can you imagine opening that thing and the oh. fumes just come right out? <laughs> Makes you wonder if when Spock's on that planet, you think the Red Angel would come up and be ready to do the mind meld and then just go, whoo, no way. Ooh, oh, stinky, backing poo. off from you there, buddy. <laughs> well, when I'm not emptying cans of Febreze all over me after that, uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. You can also find me on YouTube.com slash Productions, where I have a YouTube channel talking mostly about Star Trek. Uh, you can also find me on Facebook.com slash Productions and in the Babel Conference, also talking about Star Trek. Well, thank you all so much for listening. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one. <laughs>